Grab your Bible, if you would, and open with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we are taking a break from our sermon series through Luke so that we can spend some time focusing on the birth of Jesus Christ. So last week we did so by looking at the initial prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 about the serpent crushing seed of the woman who was to come. I mean, if you weren't here last week, what a provocative title, right? What a provocative thought, the serpent crushing seed of the woman. This morning we want to look at Genesis chapter 1, or sorry, Matthew chapter 1, (laughs) Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 and following, but as you're turning there, I want to do something that we don't normally do on Sunday morning. I want to play a little game to begin our sermon time together. So I'm going to give you a list of baby names, the most popular baby names in a given decade, and then you need to give to me which decade they came from. And I'll give you a hint, they all come from the 1900s, 19-something, okay? That's my hint for you this morning, okay? So list of names, you need to give me what decade they come from. You can go ahead and shout it out. Had really good participation in the first service. I'm expecting even greater participation because you're more awake, I'm sure. 1910. 1910. All right. Good. I like that, Clint. Well done. So you can say it out loud. If you're a little more shy, you can say it to the neighbor next to you. You can, you know, write it down. No cheating. This is time of worship after all. Okay. Here are the first Series of most popular baby names, James, Robert, John, William, Richard, for boys. For girls, Mary, Barbara, Patricia, Judith, and Betty. The 40s, the 30s, the 50s, the 60s, all right. Glad to see we have consensus this morning. It is the 19... 40s, the 1940s, the 1940s. All right, if you didn't do so hot, let not your heart be troubled. We're going to try this again. Let me give you another round of names. David, Michael, James, John, and Robert. And for the girls, Mary, Susan, Linda, Karen, and Donna. 70s, 80s, 60s, never mind. Okay, it is the 1960s, 1960s, so close. All right, let's try another one. All right, listen carefully. James, John, William, Robert, George, Mary, Helen, Margaret, Dorothy, and Ruth. 30s, 20s, can I get a 40s, can I get a 40s? Anyone, anyone in the 40s? Anyone 50s, 1950s, anyone? It is the 1910s, the 1910s. All right, let's try one more. Let's try one more. All right. Maybe this one will be easier for some. It's my hint to you. Okay. Michael, Christopher, Matthew, Joshua, Daniel. For the girls, Jessica, Ashley, Brittany, Amanda and Samantha, 80s, 90s, it is the 1990s, well done, well done. And so if you got two or more correct, you can help yourself to a free book as you leave. 
out in the foyer. If you got one or zero correct, you can also help yourself to a book as you leave. Society, though, isn't it interesting? Society at large, our society in particular, does not give a lot of weight to what a baby name means. Let me give you an example. In the 1880s, people were very excited to name their baby girl Lola. Lola. What a beautiful name. Lola. Maybe you know of a Lola. It's a gorgeous name. And people are not afraid, were not afraid in the 1880s to name their baby girl Lola, even though the name Lola actually means sorrow. Didn't bother anyone because the name sounded so beautiful. Or in the 1890s, one of the most popular baby names for a girl was Rue, R-U-E. And no one was afraid of, in the 1890s, naming their baby girl Rue, even though the name Rue means regret. And my guess is the parents of Lola's and Rue's weren't concerned that the name of their child would somehow indicate or dictate the trajectory of that child's life. It's not like, well, we named our child Regret, so they're going to live with lots of regret. Or we named our child Sorrow, so they're going to go through their life sorrowfully. No, we don't. We don't do that when we name our children. We go by how it sounds. Maybe we go by how it's associated with someone that we know. But not all cultures function the same way. It was interesting talking to one of our members between services who served for many, many years overseas as a missionary both in Africa and in India. And he said, it was talking about just some other countries and how names are given based on times of the year, names are given based on the weather, names are given based on background, and names are given for all kinds of interesting reasons. And that's true, especially in other cultures. And that's most often true historically when we enter the world of the Bible. Because to the men and women of Scripture, what you named someone carried with it meaning. Like you named someone something for that reason or hoping that they would accomplish whatever you named them. This was reactionary, generally. Now, the closest thing in our society here in North America that we can come to that is name association. You know, when you say a name or when you think of a name and then you think of someone that you know or maybe someone famous that had that kind of name. For example, if this morning I gave the name Joe Biden or the name Donald Trump, it's likely most of us in this room would think, maybe some would even feel certain things about one or both of those names. The same would be true if I gave you other famous names like Joanna Gaines or John MacArthur or Serena Williams or, dare I say it, Jim Harbaugh, right? You think and maybe you feel certain things. The point is that what we think and what we feel is based on the association that that name has. And you know that really well if you're a parent because it's more than likely at some point in time when you and your spouse were trying to come up with a name for your precious little baby in the womb, you you couldn't agree on a name. And it's likely because at some point along the line, you really liked a name, but your spouse had a really negative association with that name. And I can remember 
when Tara was pregnant with our four kids at different times, me bringing up names, and she, she had been a teacher when we got married. So she had all kinds of bad associations with all kinds of popular names. But again, this is all a reaction to someone who has a name. This is not proactive. It's not viewing the names as determinative of someone's identity, of who they will be or what they will do. But that's not how names functioned in the world of the Bible. Oftentimes, names are used determinatively. For example, Eve was named Eve before she had any children, and yet the name Eve means the mother of all living. Abraham means father of many nations. Peter means rock. Barnabas means son of encouragement. And if we wanted to get even more specifically in the Bible, we could see how oftentimes God gives specific instructions about names. So, for example, in Israel's history, when they were being unfaithful to the Lord with false gods, they were prostituting themselves as a nation against God. God tells Hosea the prophet to go and to marry a prostitute and to have children and to name the first child no mercy and to name the second child not my people. Those were both reactive and they were determinative of what God was about to do as a result of their sin, as a result of their rebellion. But the most specific example we have in all of Scripture, in fact, I would argue in all of the world, of a name being given proactively, a name being given determinatively of who that child will be and what they will accomplish is in our text this morning. And so follow along in Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. The word of the Lord says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So what's in a name? What's in a name? We're going to spend some time this morning looking together at the names of God the Son that are given here, both Jesus and Emmanuel. 
But before we get there, I want to take a few minutes and I want to kind of look around and see what else is going on in the text here this morning. And this is, as you can see, even from verse 18, the record of how Jesus entered into our world. If you remember, John 1 makes it clear that Jesus has always existed. So this is not the story of how Jesus entered into our world and began to exist. This is the story of how Jesus entered into our world, although he has already eternally existed with the Father. And we're going to see a bit later why that's so significant. But as the text opens, we are confronted with a problem. Look at verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So we have an engaged couple, legally pledged to be married, but the bride-to-be is pregnant. This is a problem. And if you're living in the region of Galilee during this time, you understand why this is really, really bad. For one, it means that possibly Joseph and undoubtedly Mary have been sexually impure. That one or both of them have sinned, and that's a problem because God has made it clear in his law that sexual intimacy is the precious gift to be enjoyed within the boundary of marriage between a man and a woman. And while Joseph and Mary are legally pledged to be married, they are not yet married. So while their status is something more than what engagement means today in our culture, it's not marriage. The second problem is legal. Because under the old covenant law of God, the penalty for this kind of sin was death. Specifically stoning. And God has given the consequences for sin. But here's the deal. Joseph knows that he has not sinned. He knows that he has not been impure with Mary. And so you can imagine that in his mind, there is only one explanation. Mary must have been unfaithful. So what can he do? Well, maybe Mary had told him that this child is not the product of sexual sin, but of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. But as you can imagine, that would be really hard to believe. There's no biblical or historical precedent for any of this. What's interesting is that Joseph does not react. He responds. We don't have any indication that he rushes to do something quickly. Instead, verse 20 makes it clear that he considered these things. So the picture that we have of Joseph is someone who is measured and thoughtful in thinking through, okay, what is the next thing to do? And what he lands on seems to him to be the best course of action, the best for everyone involved. Look at verse 19. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph is a just man, which means he seeks to do what is righteous. He seeks to follow the Lord. He seeks to be obedient to the law of God. And so he can't go forward 
with this marriage to Mary because he's not sinned. But he's also a merciful man. So he could publicly divorce Mary, and even if it didn't lead to her stoning, it would certainly destroy the rest of her life. But Joseph decides not to publicly divorce her. Instead, he'll divorce her quietly. He'll do everything he can to honor the law of God and yet at the same time extend mercy. But as you may know, Joseph does not divorce Mary. God intervenes. Look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I'm not sure that we can fully appreciate the magnitude of what's going on here. God sends a messenger to Joseph telling Joseph to not fear because this child in Mary's womb is not conceived in sin but is conceived through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. That this thing that has never happened before is now happening and is the work of God himself. That in and of itself would be astounding. But there's more. The message isn't complete. This is not just another child. His name will be called Jesus. For, in the ESV, or because, which is what that means there, he'll be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And this brings us to our first name of God the Son. His name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Remember, in the Bible, names are used often to convey meaning, especially when it's God who is the one who says, this is what the child's name will be. Name them this. And here's a prime example of a name being used to communicate an identity and to communicate a role. The name itself, Jesus, means Savior. It's really the Greek name of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. So here, in verse 19, we have a message from Yahweh himself, which is the name of God. Yahweh is delivering a message through his messenger that this child to be born will be named Yahweh saves. I mean, do you think God is trying to send a message here? The message is clear. Through this child to be born, I, Yahweh, will save my people. Now, salvation is something that the people, the Israelite people, the Jewish people had had looked forward to and had longed for by this time for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. 
really all the way back to Genesis 3.15 that we looked at last week. When God initiates the first kind of prophetic promise that through the woman, he would provide an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent. Ever since that time, people were looking forward to this Messiah, this rescuer who would come. And you can imagine the millions of Jewish children born between the prophecy in Genesis 3.15 about the serpent crushing seed of the woman and the messenger who delivers this message to Joseph. Millions of babies are born. And most likely, parents in those thousands of years hoped that their child would be the one. That their child would be the serpent crushing seed of the woman, the promised rescuer of God. And this may be why historians tell us that at the time of Jesus' birth, Jesus was actually a fairly common name. I don't know if it was one of the top five, you know, baby names in AD zero. But it was a common name because so many people longed for rescue and so many people hoped maybe our little child, our little Jesus will be the one that Yahweh uses to save us. He will be the one like David. But here at last, God himself says, this is the one. This is the one who will save his people from their sin, which is why you should name his name Jesus. All of this must have seemed incredibly overwhelming to Joseph. But as the Holy Spirit tells us through Matthew's pen, all of this was predicted It all took place to fulfill that which was written or foretold by the prophets. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So strictly speaking, this initial prophecy in Isaiah 7 is actually aimed initially at Isaiah's day, at Isaiah's time period. But through Matthew's writing, the Holy Spirit makes it clear that Isaiah's prophecy had a secondary meaning as well. It had a kind of a first primary meaning, but it also had a secondary meaning. And the secondary meaning was even more important, even more significant. Because the secondary meaning was that there would be a child to be born, a Messiah to be born, who would be Emmanuel who wouldn't just be like having God with us or wouldn't be just like the one through whom God rescues his people, but he would be God himself. And so, we have this combination of two important names, both ascribed by God, Jesus and Emmanuel. Yahweh saves and God with us. The first name, Jesus, refers to what he does. He saves. The second name refers to how he saves. He saves by being near. He saves by becoming like his people. 
Another way of putting this could be this is salvation by incarnation. Incarnation means to be embodied. We are saved because Jesus became embodied. And John would write, and the word became what? Flesh. He dwelt among us. And this dwelling among his people was God's point all along. If you remember last week, we saw how in the very beginning, at the very beginning of creation, Adam and Eve lived in union, in unity with the creator God. They enjoyed the pleasure of unbroken fellowship and unbroken relationship with the one who had created them. But because of humanity's sin, there was a break in that relationship. The intimacy that we once had as created beings, Adam and Eve, has now been broken. And yet from Genesis 3.15, the initial prophecy, the initial hint that rescue is coming, from that point on, as you read through the Old Testament, what you discover is that the Old Testament is an unfolding story of God providing the remedy, God promising the rescue to come. The story of the Old Testament is the story of God progressively coming closer and closer to his people. For example, when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt, you remember the Exodus, and he brings them out of slavery, and he brings them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he gives them the law, and he gives them the sacrificial system. And through obedience to the law, and through the sacrifices, through the, the tabernacle at the center of of the camp, the tent that was put up at the center of of the camp, that's where the presence of God symbolically dwelled in the middle of the tent, in the middle of his people. God living among his people as they adhered to the law and kept the sacrificial system. And now, through the person of Jesus Christ, God isn't coming just to live in the center of camp or to live near his people. He's coming to live with his people. And then later, after his death and resurrection, Jesus will give to every one of his followers, even up until us today, his Holy Spirit. To live not just among us, but to live inside of us. So if we were going to kind of plot this on a chart, we would see that In the tabernacle and in the temple, God lived at the center of camp. He lived among his people in these symbols that represented his presence like fire and smoke. And then in Jesus, God comes to live with his people, to be flesh and blood, to live perfectly and to take on our sin and to die in our place as a real human. And now... Those who by faith trust in Jesus' sacrifice in our place for our sin, we are given God's spirit to live inside of us. God no longer dwells in the middle of a camp somewhere. He no longer walks around in the flesh somewhere in our world right now. He actually lives in believers, in his people. You see the progression? But the story's not over. Because God's people are awaiting Jesus' return. 
we are awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. And when he returns, he will judge and then restore all things. And those who don't trust in him will face eternal punishment for sin. But those who do trust in him will experience the presence of God like never before. We will live in the new heavens and the new earth where the presence of God will be seen and experienced in ways that we can't even imagine. And forever we will savor the fact that we are with God. And that will be the greatest joy that the new heavens and the new earth have to offer. And that joy will be completely satisfying and unending. Because God has come to be among his people, to be with his people, and to be in his people. And this is why Jesus' last words to his followers in the Gospel of Matthew is this, truly I am with you always to the very end of the age. Emmanuel, God with us. And this is the answer to the fears of God's people, even in the Old Testament, even before Jesus came in the flesh. You think of Moses, remember Moses is speaking with God and crying out to God saying, God, how will, how will we know where to go as we journey across the wilderness and how will we know where to set up camp and how will we know to, to, to fight and which battles to fight and when to fight? How do we know unless you go with us? And you remember what God's comfort to Moses was in that moment? It's that my presence will go with you. He doesn't give Moses a detailed GPS map with coordinates all labeled out. This is exactly how it's going to go. This is what you should expect. And step two and three and five and 40 years down the road, he just says, I will go with you. Because that's enough. Later, his successor Joshua is facing all of the challenges of leading the people of God. And the message from God comes to him in Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous because you know exactly what to do? No. Be strong and courageous because I've given you every detail for everything that will happen. No. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous because the Lord your God is what? With you. Wherever you go. And now Jesus takes on flesh and blood to live as our perfect substitute, to be born and to die and to rise from the dead and one day to return, born to be God with us. You see, God with us was tempted as we are and yet without sin so that when we are tempted, we can remember that he is with us and we can overcome. God with us is with us through his Holy Spirit even when we feel all alone. We feel as though we're the only one seeking to be faithful. We feel like we're the only Christian. God with us when we need help. 
we face uncertainty and questions and doubts and fears, God with us, when we're sent out on mission into our communities and into our world with the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling people to repent and believe and to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, he goes with us because he's in us. You see, God is not a God who is far off. The creator of the cosmos does not live in some distant galaxy out there. He lives among his people. He lives in his people. And Emmanuel proves it. Think about it. The creator of the universe, the creator of all things, became a real living human who walked on this earth who was killed, who was raised from the dead, and although was raised in a glorified body, it was still a flesh and blood body. Think about it. There there is a flesh and blood man seated at the right hand of the Father right now. But all this because he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what's in a name? A lot. As Kevin DeYoung writes, ever since the first Christmas, Jesus has been more than just a name. It's been our only comfort in life and death. Our only hope in a restless world. When you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you have life in his name, John 20. There is in fact no other name given among, under heaven among men whereby we can be saved, Acts 4. So naturally, whatever we do in word or deed, we ought to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians 3.17. Now, to be clear, the name Jesus, like the consonants and the vowels, don't have magical power in and of themselves. The power is in the person of Jesus, not the assembly of those letters. But his name means something. It represents the person behind the name who took on flesh to save us. You see, Jesus came in human form to be more than just a teacher, more than just a miracle worker, more than just a culture changer or a catalytic leader or a humanitarian or a religious figure. He came first and foremost to save his people from their sins. To save you, to save me, and to save all who by faith trust in him alone for salvation. He came to be Emmanuel, God with us. 